If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in the Word to Genesis chapter 2. And if it hasn't become apparent, it may become apparent, my voice is fairly worn out this morning. And for that reason, if I struggle to project at any point or if I need to clear my throat, don't let that distract you. We are in a series on being human, and I too am one. But this morning we are in the fifth of our series, looking at what it means to be human. If you weren't here last week, we looked at how human beings through God's providence, have a unique objective. We have a special purpose in this visible world, and that is to bear the image and the likeness of the eternal God. And we saw that the way that we bear his image is not by resembling him physically, outwardly in our bodies, but by reflecting him in our capacities, by representing him in our actions and our conduct in the world. And now this morning we turn to look at another aspect of what it means to be human, what we are made of. Because that says very much about us as well. And our text is going to begin in Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8. Let's give attention to the word of the Lord. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we desire to be fed from your word. Nourish our spirits. We ask that you would please lead us into all truth, guard us from error, prepare us to communicate these things in time to others, whether that be our children, our family, our co-workers and friends, those whom you call us to disciple. In everything, we desire that you would be honored. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. I stated last week that capacities suggest functions or purposes. And I gave the example of finding an object after an air wreck. And the object is one that you find you can power up and it has directions on it. And you figure out, oh, this can be used for orienteering, for navigation. Capacities suggest functions and from that you reason to purpose. Well, you can do something similar with materials. The different materials out of which something is composed will give you some fairly good idea often of what the purpose or design of that object is. Take something as simple as a shirt. Now, if you have a shirt and you read the label and it says 100% merino wool, extra thick. And then you have another shirt and it says Egyptian cotton. Just by the material, you can sense one of these is probably meant for cold weather, and the other one is probably meant for very, very warm weather. They're both shirts, but they have different uses, functions, purposes, and that's indicated by their material. Now, in the case of human beings, can we ask the same thing? What are we made of? What is our material, or what is our immaterial, as we're going to get to? What has God made us from, and what does that say about our purpose in the world? what he has designed for us and how he has designed us to live. Now, the question of what we're made of has been asked, and there have been different views for hundreds and thousands of years, ever since people doubted or did not know the revelation of God. Take, for instance, ancient pagan people. And here I'm restricting myself mostly to talking about the Greeks and Roman people who lived in the Mediterranean area around the time of Christ. What was the common view at that time when the New Testament was being written? 
In that culture, a great many people understood human beings to be made of basically two substances, but those substances were antithetical. Think oil and water. You can make them kind of mix, but they do not want to be mixed, and they'd be better off separate. And even so, in Greek philosophy, that ended up spilling into many places throughout the whole world, it was believed that human beings are composed of two substances. One, the first, is the immaterial spirit, or mind, and that is joined temporarily to the physical body. In this view, mind is so completely better that long-term your goal is to have them separated. Sure, Greeks could have fun, and they enjoyed their bodies. But there was an understanding, long-term, we're better off with separation of these two. Because the mind is ideal, and it lives in the world of ideals. Think of, for a moment, a circle in your mind. In your mind, that circle is perfect. It reflects the mathematical formula pi accurately. You can imagine a perfect circle. Now go make a perfect circle. Draw me a perfect circle. Zoom in on it with a microscope. How perfect is your circle? You get down to the level of the plank. It's not perfect. And so Greeks reason to this idea that if we could just escape into the, war, into the realm of spiritual ideals, then we'll be truly happy and be done with this body. That has implications for how people live, how they think through end-of-life issues, how they think through end-of-early-life issues. Are they really not doing a, a service to somebody if they think that person's going to have a very hard physical life to just relieve them from it? Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Now you jump forward in history and you come to modern materialism and it says really the opposite. Human beings are composed of one substance, matter. Matter and energy, the kinds of things that we can subject to empirical testing. That's all there is in that view. And so there is not spirit, soul, heaven, hell, realities that you can't see of that kind of sort that we more often associate with religion. That, too, has consequences for how people live. What does the scripture say? Has scripture spoken? Yes, it has. Both the Old and the New Testament assert over and over again concerning how God has formed human beings, how he has made you. And what it tells us is that he has designed and he has destined you for duality. Now, I didn't say dualism, not two things that really want to be separated. But duality, he has given you body and spirit, or if you will, soul, in order that these two would be so integrated that they should never be separated. And he's done that exactly because he desires you to image him in this world, to embody spirituality here in this world, to interact with all that he's made. He finds great joy in that, and he delights to see us delight in what he's done. And so there's tremendous goodness in our very physicality. It's not something that Christians are seeking to escape. It's not something that we're just trying to jump out of to get into heaven. People talk about, oh, heaven's going to be great. Hopefully what you mean is the new creation. Heaven will be great too. But that's a holding pattern for when heaven is brought fully into integration with the new creation. That's the hope, resurrection. So we need to think through both this doctrine and some of the implications 
As we do that, I'm going to lay them out simply that way as two main headings. First, I want to lay before you what this doctrine is, very basically. And then to look at some of what it means for how it shapes your faith, how it directs the way that you're going to live in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell it to you in order to tell it to myself. We cannot possibly touch every question or every implication that you might wonder about concerning body and soul. But we can at least lay a foundation for you to build on or to walk out of here with something to act upon. So let's go straight into the basic doctrine of our human nature. Look with me again at Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. And you'll see that from the very beginning, God's design entailed union of these two substances. First substance that we encounter is in verse 7, tangible matter, where it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Some have read that as dust, some as clay, as dirt. I don't believe it's essential. It's earth matter. It's real physical stuff. I'm partial to the word dust because it's humbling. He didn't look for something obviously great. He took us from the clay, and he made people. We are humbled in that. And God has chosen to take from his good creation something simple and to do something great with it. And that's his prerogative. But something must be added to it. And you see in verse 7 an important detail that something is added which is much more subtle than the clay, and yet it is real and finite. We call it spirit. Verse 7, it says, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He was not alive until he received whatever he got then. And I want to be very clear. I don't believe that that's talking simply about oxygen. Like God just blew some wind into him, and suddenly the man's organisms all started to work. When it says that the Lord breathed into him the breath of life, or literally in Hebrew, the breath that gives life, it's going to something much deeper, but it's putting it in terms that we can wrap our heads around a little bit. The Bible all over uses language of accommodation. It takes huge concepts and puts them on the lower shelf where the kiddos, like you and I, can get at them. This word that's used here for breath, it's part of a family of words in Hebrew. And those words are used more or less interchangeably for either breath, like you would think of exhalation, inhalation, or that which is spirit. I want to give you just a few examples. Genesis 6, 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Literally, it's the exact same word. My wind will not abide in man. Genesis 4, verse, or 41, verse 8 describes Pharaoh having had a bad dream. He wakes up in the morning, and it says, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. Not his breath was troubled. His spirit was troubled that morning over the dream that he had had. And it makes sense for an ancient people, or even a modern people, to use those words synonymously, because they both get at the same idea. It's something you don't see, but is essential for life. I don't see it and understand exactly how it works, but I need it to live. And so, in that original creation, God imparts both a physical component and a spiritual component. We know a fair bit about our physical bodies, but what does the scripture reveal about the human spirit or soul? Can we say anything concrete about that? 
Well, yes, we can. And the very first thing is this. According to Scripture, the spirit or soul, and I use those words interchangeably, the spirit is that which possesses the principle animating biological life. I'm going to say that again, at least in the case of humans, because that's where Scripture is very clear. The spirit contains the principle that animates biological life. What exactly does that mean? We'll come back to that. But here's some passages here. First, verse 7 again. You notice God breathed or inspired, and the man became a living creature. Compare that to James 2, verse 6. The body apart from the spirit is dead. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 speaks concerning death. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. When the spirit is separated from the body, when they are no longer properly integrated, the body cannot continue to live. Genesis 35, verse 18, describes a woman named Rachel who is dying in childbirth. And it says, As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called out her son's name. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called out her son's name. There are many other passages that go to that idea that somehow, in the way that God has formed things, the spirit is what animates or preserves our biological life in a meaningful way. Now, what other attributes can be inferred from Scripture? Quite a few. Quite a few attributes of the Spirit can be inferred. Take, for instance, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, it describes the martyrs praying before the throne of God. These are people who died for their faith. And John, in the vision, is seeing them before the throne of God in heaven. He's seeing their spirits represented in the vision. And what are they doing? They are praying, and their prayer is a prayer of yearning for God to bring about judgment against those who hate Christ and his church. That is so full of implications for what your spirit is and can do. Or take a passage like the transfiguration of Christ upon the mount, and Moses, whose body has been dead for over a thousand years at that point, Moses appears and the disciples are able to see, because his spirit is allowed by God to be manifested in some way, but not corporeally, not tangibly, as our bodies are. And Moses enters into a conversation with Jesus. What does this say about our spirit? That says that our spirit is the seat. It's the seat of individual consciousness, memory, affections, will, that means that even when taken away from the body, something of you, your essential personal identity, persists. That is a major concept, and it is so radically different than materialism or a downplaying of the role of the soul. We'll come to some of those implications, but the soul is then tremendously important. If that's where the final seat of those things are, then it gives weight to what Jesus says when he says, do not fear those who can kill your body. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul. And already you see it means that you are, for all practical purposes, immortal. Immortal in God's providence as a believer. They may kill your body, but you will live. 
And that can change the way that we encounter the world. It changes the courage with which we approach things. I am by no means saying that it's easy to lay aside the body. But Christ did, and many Christians after him have. Now, I would not want, on the other hand, to diminish the importance of the physical body. The spirit being the seat is incredibly important. Without it, there is not physical life. But the importance of the physical body is very apparent in Scripture as well. And I want to lay before you some of the indications of that. Starting where we've been for these several weeks in Genesis. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 31. What is the phrase which God pronounces over his creation? He calls it what? Very good. When God looks at an embodied spirit, he does not see someone, in the words of the philosopher Plato, a spirit trapped in a prison house of the body. God looks at Adam and he says, great, very good. I like this. I like what I see. I like seeing a spirit in a body. This is how it should be. I enjoy this. God is thrilled with his creation. We should not imagine that he made it so that he could just scowl at it. That is such a broken view of the Lord God who created the world. We have broken many things in it, but he looks at it and he knows how the room was set up before the kids went in there and just demolished it. He says, I love the things in this room. And one of them was the embodied spirits that we call human beings. Second, and really, could it be written any more boldly, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ was not raised just to hang out for, you know, another 50 years and then to die again. He was raised with an everlasting resurrection. He has put on immortality, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And that means that very God of very God has become very man of very man forever in such a way as he is willing to on that body for the rest of eternity. A billion years from now, when we're just beginning to enjoy the wonderful things that he's given to us, Christ, for all I know, will still be doing things like he did in John chapter 20, having fish on the beach, enjoying an embrace with friends. You see, of all people, Jesus is very physical. He's constantly putting hands on people to heal them. He's constantly inviting, say, John at the Last Supper to lean on his chest. That kind of intimacy. In Christ's resurrection, God has said the final word about his delight in our having a duality of nature, being body and soul. But then if, to add anything else, it's the fact that he is destined to us the same eternity. Those who believe upon Christ with him will be raised like him. And so it's not just that that's part of Jesus' punishment that he's taking for us to have a body. We will be like him. What will that include? I don't know all the glorious things that it will include. But we know that it will be wonderful. Now, hear what it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that leads sometimes that people want to get out of this world. Get me out of here. Get me off this. But... Think then how the verse finishes, verse 21, concerning Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. It's not that we want to get out of here, it's that we want to get back here and for all things to be subjected to his glorious power. 
That's the goal. And that should, I I so already want to run ahead to the implications, that should shape how we live now, that already we want to bring into this world a small taste, a glimpse of that in the way that we conduct ourselves bodily. How does the body become more glorious when it says that we shall be transformed from our lowly bodies to be more like his glorious body? We don't become more glorious by becoming less tangible. Like the more glorious you are, the more... I don't know, illusory you are, and you go to put your hand on the pulpit and it just passes right through, becoming a ghost. That's not more glorious. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us some idea. 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection passage, beginning of verse 41 says, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. They are all luminary bodies but they're all tangible they have different glory then he says so it is with the resurrection of the dead what was sown is perishable that is what you were before you were raised you were a person who could die your physical body could expire but what is raised is imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Again, the contrast there is not between physical and non-physical. When it says sown a natural versus a spiritual body, Adam by nature did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. You, in your resurrection form, will be fully empowered and governed by the Holy Spirit. What a wonder to be operating out of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your body. To be able to eat and never be tempted to harm yourself with food. To be able to drink and never be tempted to abuse your mind and the lives of others through drunkenness. What a glory to be able to inhabit your body and be fully in control and not it driving you, as so often is the case in our fallen condition. Glorious we shall be. So then what is the function of our physical nature? As I've already gotten at, this is God's ingenious ingenious means for you to interact with this world. It is the most brilliant interface for someone representing God to act upon the things that he's made and for him to observe it with delight. And for us as imagers to delight as well. It's not just that God watches and delights, but he delights in seeing us delight. When God filled this world with copper and iron, And then he placed people here who could work those things with their hands. That is a gift. When he sowed the world with every kind of plant, and he placed us with tongues to enjoy it. What a gift. God's desire for us is to fill the world with expressions of his praise, to cause sound waves to reverberate. I can't see very much, so scientists tell me. I'm not referring to these glasses. I'm referring to the fact that we can't see ultraviolet light and many other things. But God understands and is able to observe and appreciate, even I imagine, the very formation of the waves of the sound of his praise as they come out of our mouths. Not just the words, but the whole way that it interacts in his world. What an amazing thing to be an embodied spirit. I mean, as... It doesn't hit us because we do it all the time. 
because we're just human all the time. But to think that there is a physical thing in this world that has will and consciousness, it is incredible. And this is what God has done. He has not just made us a soul with a body. He's made us in such a way that you are designed to be one forever, fully integrated. What then does this mean for us? With whatever time we have left, I want to lay before you just some implications of this doctrine. What does our dualistic nature say for how we live? The first is this, and I've already touched on this. God will be glorified when you seek to physically embody his character, his loves, his affections, to physically embody them. Sometimes Christians fall off on this other side where they think that the way to sanctification is by trying to diminish all physicality in life, to escape into their own heads or to escape out of their bodies if there were a way. And in the worst forms, this is referred to as asceticism. Asceticism, children, if that's a new word to you, it's basically trying to say no to lots and lots of physical things like eating tasty food, getting married, things that we think are either very pleasurable, well, that's going to distract my soul. I shouldn't do that. Or sometimes there are arbitrary uh, lines that are drawn around things where we can feel very religious, like I'm showing I have self-control, so I'm just not going to do that. And I've done that too, by the way. I want to be very careful about what I'm about to say. Some people, because of the interaction of body and soul, have so affected their bodies through certain substances that their soul cannot be around that thing. They will fall every time. And so I'm not at all trying to suggest to somebody that, for instance, if you have an established drinking problem, that you should drink in faith. Your body may not be healed, and your soul will feel the effects of that. But I was raised in a teetotaling home. There was never alcohol. It was not a thing. And then I remember coming around Reformed Christians and finding out they do sometimes drink moderately and sometimes immoderately, which is a sin. So I remember being around these Christians when I was 21, 22, and saying to myself, I'm just never going to drink just so I can show to myself that I've got a lot of self-control. Is that how you become more spiritual? Or is true spirituality using each thing in the right way? True spirituality is using each thing in the right way. That's how Christ dealt with it. They accused him of being a wine-bibber, of being a drunkard. He was not a drunkard. But he used each thing in the right way. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 warns about asceticism. It says, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Why are they doing that? Because they're saying, well, those, those will really diminish your spiritual life. To become truly spiritual, you have to let go of physical desires. God created us to spiritually enjoy physical things. That is not a license to hedonism. That's not a license to excess, to abusing anything. It is a license to holy living. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
to all to the glory of God. And that's tremendously freeing and exciting. The world is full of wonderful things that God desires us to delight in and to share with others. And that says that too, if we are workers, we should strive to produce the highest quality of things. We should strive to present to the world, again, something of what it would be if God himself laid his hand to the work. It's an awesome calling. But then when you reflect on the reality of things as we've made them, we see that sin has touched both aspects of our being. I want to be clear here. I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that the physical matter that comprises my body is guilty of my sin. I don't mean that. As if I could lose one-tenth of my body weight somehow, maybe a a terrible accident, and then I'd be 10% less guilty. Got rid of it. But with our spirits, we have misused and defiled these wonderful vessels that God has given to us. With our spirits, we have used our bodies for sin. In fact, look at me at Romans chapter 1. Turn with me there and see Paul's litany concerning sin. As you hear this list of sins, where Paul is speaking concerning all humanity, as you hear them, think a little bit about how these manifest physically, how you use your body to do these things. Since humans did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They became filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. So that's on the inside. But then it's going to come out. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Even when you deceive somebody, you're calling under your command the expressions of your face, your exact intonation, the way your eyes move, body language, you're manipulating language. All of that taking something amazing that God gave you that you had nothing to do with designing and then you weaponize it for sin. And God has every right to be frustrated, to be angry, to be offended that these vessels that he created to bear his image are instead being run into the earth. It goes on, they are gossip, slanders, haters of God. The same tongue that God gifted you with to sing his praises and then people use it to blaspheme him. Foolish, faithless, oh, I skipped some, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They do not know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges If you judge yourself by other people, you can feel pretty good about yourself. But if you judge yourself by the standard of Jesus Christ, who is the standard by which we will judge and be judged, then you see we all come up so far short. What does that declare about the destiny of the guilty? What does your duality say about the destiny of the guilty? I want you to think about this question for a moment. And I believe it's rhetorical because I do believe the answer is obvious. 
Is it not just of God that the sins which were committed in and with the body, as well as the spirit, should be visited upon, should be avenged within the body as well as the spirit? Is it not just that if you took and used your physical form to work evil, that God should visit upon the physical form as well as the spirit his judgment? People don't like hearing that. They don't like hearing that God afflicts and avenges, but the scripture will not spare us just because we wish to be ostriches to the justice of God. Revelation 20 and Daniel chapter 7 and 9 speak about this. Revelation 20 says, as he looks ahead to the final judgment, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, which is Christ, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Not merely intentions in the heart, but the things they did with their bodies. And then verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And what does it mean for death and Hades? Here, speaking of the abode of disembodied souls, to give up. It means to turn over people for what is described in Daniel as a general resurrection of the dead. It's not just Christians who get a new body. The whole world will get a resurrection. And it says, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Please do not try to twist the scriptures as though there is not physical judgment, everlasting judgment for the damned. Our sins are committed in the body. Romans 9 says so, so clearly that even as there are vessels of mercy to be filled with mercy forever, so there are vessels of wrath that shall be filled. And when God makes a vessel, he knows how to make it last if he wishes. It should, it must drive you out of yourself, out of your complacency, out of your indifference about the heinousness of sin, drive you into the arms of Christ as a totally complete Savior. When God came into this world, he didn't just put on like a skin suit and have his God person inside. The person of the Son took to himself true human nature, both body and spirit. So we can say he had a true human soul. And that means that as Jesus suffered throughout his life, he wasn't just suffering physically, but he was experiencing the anguish of a true human person. He was experiencing soul pain, agony over the condition of the world and over the sin of his people, and ultimately undergoing our shame, our penalty on the cross. Take to heart the very last words of Jesus before he dies in Luke 23. Then Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And it's a bookend to the making of Adam. With Adam, it was all potential and hope. With Christ, there is certainty. 
because what he offered has turned away the judgment for all who are united with him. That gives us absolute confidence then that we will be raised like him, with a resurrection like his. If he's been brought up from that, then so shall we. Then receive God's summons, hear this passage, and by the Holy Spirit, may it sink into you afresh. I don't expect that today, maybe it will be, I don't suspect that this is going to be the day where from now on everything's different and you only obey all the time. But week by week, the Lord does call us back. And this day, he's calling you back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies, that is your spiritual worship. What does that look like? The Christian calling is so physical, so physical. I mean, even just start the fact that we're seated here and that God's ordinary design is that we come together. We'll see in a later week to be human is to be made for companionship, for presence. It's important that we're together. And it's important that when people are in the hospital or sick, that people go to them. It's important that those who are shut at home receive visits. All of this has implications because God made us to feel whole when we have both the physical and the spiritual. So we can't just cut people off into this lie, which is virtual friendship that the internet peddles to us, as if that's totally going to satisfy. Arguably, people have never been less satisfied with the quality of their friendships overall than in the past 20 years. This means that we have to regard other people as more than bodies. And there are some times where that comes really to hit hard. I speak to some here who I am certain just because we're human in a group who are every day grappling or not grappling enough with lust. But what does lust do? It denies, functionally denies that that other person possesses a spiritual nature and a mortal person within who is made to bear God's image. Treats that person like they are physical equipment for your playing around with. The same goes for the way that we treat laborers. And the Bible is replete. It is replete with warnings from God about the abuse of the poor who are oppressed in their wages. When we treat somebody like they are just equipment to do work and don't think about the fact that God has given them a calling even as we have a calling. And we're callous to the suffering they endure so that we can have what we have. I am not at all claiming I know the answer for the enormous economic mess that sin has wrought in the whole of the world. I don't know the answer. What I do know is that on the individual level, the the local level of the Christian church, each one of us should think very carefully. The persons that I'm interacting with are image bearers. They're not just a body that I can set aside and dismiss. They're a person known by God who will be like him in the resurrection. There is so much more that we will not say this morning. I would, if we had time, go into things, and I say them only concise that you think. The fact that you are spiritual, don't forget it. It means you are susceptible to spiritual influence. There are things you don't see that do shape you. But on the other hand, the fact that we are integrated means that what affects your body will affect your spirit and vice versa. That has huge implications. I leave them to you to study. At this time, let's ask the Lord to 
take what we have received and to bless it. Our Father, we thank you for the amazing miracle of life in this world. We ask that you would please nourish us even as we prepare to go out into the world. Fill us with your hope. Fill us with your confidence for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.